0: Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Today's guest is Ben Ansell, professor of comparative democratic institutions at Newfield College, University of Oxford. He's the author of a recently released book, Why Politics Fails. I was really interested in speaking with Ben because his academic work and this book, obviously, is focused on the implicit meta theme of The Realignment podcast, Why, considering the rising stakes and potential new coalitions, doesn't the American political system successfully address, resolve, or form new consensus on any of the big issues we regularly discuss on this show? Ben's work and this overall conversation is a great starting point, and it'd be helpful and somewhat anti-pessimistic to apply this framework to whatever specific issue you care the most about that said, huge thank you to the Foundation for American Innovation for supporting the work of this podcast. Hope you all enjoy this conversation. Ben Ansel, welcome to The Realignment. Thank you so much for having me here. Your book raises an obvious question. When did politics succeed? you could pick any time place country obviously you are in the uk but you've also spent time in the united states like when would you say is a period people could look back on politics as a process succeeding
1: so it's a great question uh, and it's a good cold open as well marshall uh, to to have you know have me think about the positive moments and so i'm going to answer that in a positive way but i'm going to do so uh, in a slightly tragic way because i think the big moments when major reforms have occurred to the apparatus of government um, and of public services have been in bad times, have been either in the United States during the Great Depression. I think your listeners will have different views about the merits of the New Deal uh, and the merits of all the policies created in them, but some of them have been incredibly long-lived. I mean, Social Security being the most obvious example of a policy that remains incredibly popular and is now almost 100 years old. In the United Kingdom, the moment that people always look back on is the transition in 1945 at the end of the Second World War and the creation of the United Kingdom's version of Social Security. To some degree, pensions increased at that time. But the big the big kahuna there was the National Health Service, which was created at the end of the Second World War as well. So yeah, we have had these moments of success. But the bad news is to get to those moments of success, something really bad has had to happen that's made it more possible for existing polarization to dissolve and for there to be a sense of urgency about getting something done
0: you know that's fascinating because you're getting at the core of the ideological dilemma there because obviously the two programs or periods you're referring to are periods where you had the expansion of government whether it's the nhs or the new deal program so if you're a conservative listener you would kind of say, wait, your definition of politics and success really is a definition that's focused more on the reform aspect of politics. Sure. Wouldn't successful politics be something like the 1990s? Maybe nothing big gets done, but, you know, the economy's growing. Um we're having stable transitions of power. I'm kind of curious, like, what do you think about just like a more stable vision of politics working? And maybe things are sort of put to the side um, and resolved through culture or just basic social, uh, economic interactions as opposed to government expanding.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. So to get big changes to the architecture of, of government, which in the middle of the 20th century were about state expansion. Of course, they weren't in the 19, late 1970s, mid 80s. 1990s. So there's big transformations of government have tended to be when bad things have happened. And it's an interesting hypothesis that I haven't thought a great deal about, about whether the great moments for neoliberalism can only happen under, under peace. Um, I mean, you could argue that much of the 19th century, right, is developing uh, a free market architecture uh, during, you know, 100 years of, of broadly interstate peace. Of course, there are lots of non-peaceful things about the 19th century, right, imperialism, <laughs> Uh, the Civil War and so on. Um, but yeah, you know, I think I think there's a fair point to be made that if you're a, a listener on the center right, big, successful moments of politics look like things like the Reagan tax reform, right They look like doing something where you simplify what the government does, where you broaden the tax base and you cut out a lot of exceptions. Um, that, I think was was made easier for Reagan by the fact that there was clearly a kind of ideological shift against what the post-war consensus looked like. Uh, But it still wasn't an easy policy for him to put through because you know who loves complicated tax codes? Businesses and special interests, right? Mm -hmm. And we know it's extremely difficult to get those passed. So so you might be right to say that politics is going to succeed in different ways, of course, depending on what your priors are about what you want from politics. Um, But the success, I think, generally comes from figuring out ways are dealing with a lot of special interests at once and overriding whatever their previous concerns have been. You know, I can give you a good example right now about what's happening in Brazil. Mm -hmm. So in Brazil, there's a very, very complicated tax code uh, with lots of different Uh, regional taxes at the state level and then at the federal level. And the way they've been used by Brazilian businesses is largely to minimize their tax exposure by coming up with complicated tax transfer systems where you, you minimize your exposure by moving money from the regional to the federal level. So that is actually being simplified under the current government. And it's not because Lula won the election, because Lula has almost no dominance in the Brazilian legislature. It's because eventually there was a coalition large enough to kill the special interests uh, and so I think, you know, those moments, if you're from a, kind of a more neoliberal change perspective, are the big ones and they can happen in in places with as complicated politics as Brazil.
0: Yeah. And this is just interesting because I wanted to offer that caution just because a frustration I tend to have with the broad democracy discourse is oftentimes it's easy to define democratic success or political success as your specific policy prerogatives. Of course being able to pass or not. And I don't think that's what majority people do, but if you just kind of listen between the lines, I do a lot of these interviews, that seems to be kind of like the implicit point being made. So I want to offer that caution. But I think a useful way of understanding what politics is, and once again, this this actually goes to your book is maybe and push back if this is incorrect, but my takeaway from your book is I would define political failure as the inability to translate popular will um into some form of action. So if it's the 1980s and we are entering the neoliberal era and there's a clear backlash against the New Deal and the Great Society, politics succeeded, whether or not you agree with the policy apparatus of the Reagan administration, because it translated um, the will which was translated by the majorities uh, Reagan won um, in his two presidential campaigns, into tax cuts, deregulation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in the New Deal, that popular world looked like, hey, we're going to actually impose more of a state on laissez-faire capitalism. So w- is that a useful way of like understanding like, what successful politics could look like then?
1: Yeah, I think it's fair to say that in a democracy, in, in a political system where we think self-rule is important, we cannot assume that self-rule naturally has to benefit one side of the ideological spectrum. And I think many commentators, many of my colleagues, you know, it, it's very easy to mistake your views about what politics should look like and who you would vote for for a successful democratic system. Uh, and so I think we have to be really careful about that. That's been one of the great debates we've had in this country, in the United Kingdom, about the merits of, of the Brexit vote. Regardless of one's views about whether this was a good idea or not, a 52 to 48% majority vote is a 52 to 48% majority vote. Um, and presumably that reflected a shift in the general public's attitudes about the European Union from the referendum that brought Britain in in the first place. If we can't tolerate a country that changes its mind from left to right and back again, then we're simply not tolerating what it means to self-govern. Because the assumption then is there's a dictatorship of whoever you prefer. So um, you know, I think your rejoinder is really worth making. I do think, and I argue very strongly in the book, that that doesn't mean that there's a simple thing that we should call the will of the people, because that's such a complex thing to define. It even means complete consensus, in which case we never get anything done. Or it means some form of majoritarianism. And then we have the problems of losers' consent and what you do about people who are in the minority from election to election. That might be fine. But if you're always in the minority, right, if, you, if your side never wins, then that's a challenge for democracies to figure out how to deal with. And, and simply claiming that majority rule is the will of the people and therefore everybody needs to shut up doesn't assuage the people who always lose. right? And, and so that's a challenge for any democracy to deal with.
0: So let's just get to definitions then. Can you just define what politics is? Sure.
1: (laughs) It's it's obvious, but it's also a complicated question. (laughs) It is a very difficult question. So what do we mean by politics? We mean um, how we make decisions about what we're going to do collectively. And that's a really broad definition. Um, Let me distinguish that from, from the law. Because in a way, when we write laws uh, and when we interpret and follow laws, we're also doing something along those lines. But when we interpret and follow laws, we're doing so with a third party that stands behind the law and can enforce it, right? That can punish us if we don't follow the law and then sets the procedures by which we have to follow if we want to change or interpret that law differently. Fundamentally, there's no third party that stands behind politics. Um, unless one wants to get kind of divine right about this, there's no third party that we can call on to enforce truly political decisions. And and there's an example I've been using since I wrote the book, um, which is the deal that we as voters have with politicians. So uh, I'll give an example from the United Kingdom. In the 2019 general election that Boris Johnson won, he was opposed by the Labour uh, politician Jeremy Corbyn, who was a socialist. And one of Corbyn's policies was to introduce free broadband for everybody in the country. Okay, so that's in the manifesto, that's something you could vote for. So imagine Jeremy Corbyn had one, and we're in the world of this counterfactual, and a year later, you're like, where's my broadband? Where's where's my free broadband? It didn't happen. Mm -hmm. What can you do about it? You can wait till the next election to punish the party for not giving it to you, but there's no one you can call on in the same way that if you asked ATT for broadband, or Comcast for broadband, and then they didn't deliver, well, you could sue them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and political life is, is about essentially these, these very contingent promises that politicians make to voters, that politicians make to one another, that countries make to one another, uh, that can't truly be enforced. I'll give you one final example on this. We talk a lot about the challenge that Ukraine has had not being a member of NATO. It's always always been on this kind of NATO glide path a kind of friend of NATO. But being a friend of NATO did not compel in any way NATO members to intervene and prevent the Russian invasion. It didn't compel them to attack Russia. Uh, And you might say, uh, bad news for Ukraine, but good news for Estonia, because Estonia is a NATO member. So we are all obliged to protect Estonia uh, if it's invaded by Russia. But here's the problem with that. If, If that had happened under the Trump administration and Trump, no great friend of NATO, had seen a Russian invasion of Estonia and said, hey, too bad, what could Estonia have done? Again, there was no one they could call on, right? There is no third party that they could call on to arrest Donald Trump for, you know, uh, for not following NATO rules of collective security. And that makes political life really difficult. It means that even a treaty as seemingly strong as NATO ultimately can only be enforced if we want to enforce it, not by some actor that stands behind it. So to me, that's a truly political problem in nature.
0: And can you talk a little bit about the – because I'm interested in your point around uh, the difference between law, like the legal code, and then politics. Mm-hmm. Talk about that side of the ledger because I do think when I'm just thinking of conversations I've had with with listeners or with people who have frustration with politics, there's a real lack of – the differences between these two categories are, are are difficult and often frustrating. So focus on the legal side of things. Sure.
1: I, I mean, I'm not an expert on, on law and politics, so I'll, I'll just borrow what my, my friends in political science would say about it, which is that what lawyers believe they're doing and what politicians believe they're doing are, I think, different domains, right? So what lawyers argue they're doing and perhaps truly believe they're doing is John Roberts-like, or at least this is what Roberts said, right? Where I'm going to call him as I see him. I'm behaving as an umpire. There is a rigid code of symbols and rules that are out there that I am simply interpreting and applying to this particular case. Okay, uh, and I am doing so knowing that I have the 800-pound gorilla of the United States government standing behind me to enforce, you know, as for example with school desegregation, to enforce those rules uh, if people don't want them enforced. So that's the kind of idealized take on the law. I think people's cynicism about the law is natural because firstly it's not obvious that judges are truly neutral umpires even if they believe themselves to be so right Mm -hmm. we all come to this world with a set of values that drive how we interpret information um we can claim to be originalists but now we've discovered that you know kbj has her own form of textual originalism that's very different from samolito's so even then it's it's not super clear uh how one would do that but More importantly, judges are appointed by politicians, and politicians seek to court curb all the time, right? So, you know, we began by talking about the New Deal, but the New Deal was a moment of great democratic challenge for the United States in that the Supreme Court tried to overrule various parts of the New Deal, and then FDR himself tried to overrule the Supreme Court and to potentially pack it, right? And we had ultimately a deal that saved the Supreme Court. But that suggests that legal systems themselves are embedded in this core political problem that they don't have any backup that they can call on, right? There's no sort of judge of the judges or judge of the political system that can enforce the way in which courts and politicians interact. And to give you a really up-to-date example of that, look at what's going on in Israel currently with the attempts by the Netanyahu government to restrict judicial review, which the courts oppose, which members of Mossad and the IDF oppose. But nonetheless, there's no third party on who they can call to enforce that Netanyahu behaves, you know, makes judicial legislation in some kind of legal way. It's not possible. Mm -hmm. It's ultimately political.
0: So a couple follow up questions then. So number one, if you're someone who's looking at that Jeremy Corbyn alternate universe where he promises uh, universal broadband in the UK, but he doesn't deliver it. Do you, or does the political science field have a grand unified theory of what, separate from intent, um, makes politicians actually do something that they that they promised? Because I think the 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 key pushback to let's say a jilted uh, Labour Party voter who's mad at Jeremy Corbyn for not passing Universal Broadband in the scenarios oh, look like public policy is actually super complicated, and that's like a very 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 big ask. So you have to separate. The fact that he probably, and I assume, like knowing Jeremy in politics, he actually meant that he was going to do universal broadband. You have to separate um, the difficulty from in, from intent. Um, so, what actually, especially in those difficult situations, um, forces something into actual implementation or action?
1: Yeah, I, I worked in government um, in the in the heights of the the New Labour era. Uh, I worked in for the Treasury. The Britain's Finance Minister Ministry uh, for two years, 2004 to 2006. And so I now know, as I hope most political scientists should know, how very, very difficult it is to make policies and to make policies effective, right? So one reason why a promise that you tell the general public doesn't happen is because it's simply not possible. The money runs out in some fashion or, or you made a mistake and you, you acknowledge that. Um, you would hope that the public are forgiving enough to acknowledge that this can happen. But I also think that it's important for politicians to be constrained by reality and not to make promises that they can't keep. And so I think the political science answer to all of these questions is, don't trust the words that come out of democratic politicians' mouths. They might happen, they might not. Trust not what people say, but your ability to punish them for it not happening. In other words, trust accountability rather than assume intent or representation is the way that you get to policies. Um, and so for quite sort of bare bones, formal Democrats like me, I mean, I'm i am not somebody who thinks countries are not democracies unless they've accomplished a whole set of wonders in terms of political equality and social equality. I think a democracy is a democracy when you can kick the buns out. Uh, when the process by which you kick the bums out is free and fair, but ultimately what matters is your ability to do so and to do so time and time again when they don't satisfy you. Um, And that puts me, I guess, on the kind of we're all fallen angels (laughs) side of the world, right? I don't expect politicians to be able to do what they say, but they do at least want the ability to express my discontent of them. Uh, and, And so to that extent, I think a lot of the very heated arguments that political scientists made between 2016 and 2020, that the political systems of the United Kingdom and United States had somehow become undemocratic, I think, are fundamentally wrong. And uh, and I argued so uh, over social media at at the time. And indeed, we have seen rotation of leaders over that point in time, right? Donald Trump is no longer president. It's a really tough question to know what would have happened had Trump successfully overridden the, the, uh, the votes in Arizona and Georgia and Wisconsin, right? Uh, if Mike Pence hadn't stood up for for the procedure, but he did, uh, and so we're in a world where we did have that turnover, and that's how that's how our democracies function best, in my view.
0: You know, it's interesting. As you were giving that answer, I realized that part of the answer to the dilemma of how do you get politicians to translate their programs to implementation is the referendum system, which is where the Brexit conversation started. The purpose of a referendum is, you know, we obviously delegate um, authority responsibility to implement and create policy to politicians but if best if you I don't, I don't know the history of referendums um in the UK but if you're looking at the progressive movements um in the early 20th century in the United States particularly out west like I you know grew up in Oregon yeah. so like Oregon has the system California has the system Wisconsin has the system um you had the referendum to force politicians to do that um at the same time though you know so while I'm obviously sympathetic to, re- to the to, to the referendum system um, I'm reading a lot of I'm reading a lot about the um pre-war um era you know 1936 37 41 U.S UK and you know one of the ideas um that isolationists uh on the American left and right had was that you know hey like we should um make intervention in foreign conflict something that's up to a referendum which by definition is a horrible Horrible, horrible, horrible idea on a couple of different levels. Um, so we could be sympathetic to referendums, but also notice the weaknesses. Like, what do you think about referendums as a solution to the dilemmas we're discussing today?
1: I mean, I think he and, 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 maybe... and, and, and one quick thing. Ooh, go ahead.
0: And the defense of the referendum is: if I'm a you know UKIP or Tory you know voter in 2014, 2015, I would not trust David Cameron's. Um, Conservative Party to actually pass Brexit if he promised it in a pamphlet. So that's where I understand the need to have a referendum to implement that fifty-two forty-eight um, point of view. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I think we we learned a lot about people's willingness, so-called Democrats' willingness to go through with a uh, democratic referendum in the United Kingdom in twenty sixteen. You know, I was somebody who supported the Remain side. Obviously, I therefore didn't want the outcome that happened. But I think it became clear to me and others over this period of time that coming up with incredibly convoluted ways to justify why you could ignore a referendum was was ultimately anti-democratic. Mm-hmm. Now, you can then get into these questions about, well, should you have multiple referendums for the same issue? If it's a complicated one, should you have a supermajority? Um, and... You know, those are viable arguments to have. But ultimately, if you didn't have them before the referendum, it's it's closing the gate after the the horse has bolted. And and coming up, you know, it's like the old kind of best of three, best of five, best of seven way of trying to, to win a game. So I think, you know, you have to go through with the system that you encouraged when people say things like, well, a majority of the registered voting public did not vote for this you know, we don't normally count the people who didn't vote in elections. So I think we have- That's a choice in of itself,
0: (laughs) in a weird way. And unfortunate, I I think it's unfortunate, but it's a a choice in of itself.
1: (laughs) It's a choice in and of itself. And of course, it works really poorly for the example of Brexit, which had much higher turnout than most general elections had anyway. So you'd have to sort of throw out every other election uh, on the same principle. Uh, I think referendums um, are- clearly democratic in a majoritarian sense. Um, I think when you get 60-40 results, which is quite often with, uh, you know, the ballot initiatives, popular ballot initiatives that occur in places like California and Oregon and Minnesota and Wisconsin and so on, then I don't think that's particularly complicated for us to deal with. I think the challenges emerge in two cases. One is when you have very, very narrow victories, Mm -hmm. uh, in which case you have the problem of dealing with the losers. You have losers' consent. It becomes a problem in two ways. You know, firstly, the losers have to accept the result. And you know, that clearly took a while with Brexit for those who voted for Remain to accept this had happened. But also the winners need to, they're going to be living in the same country as a very similarly sized group of losers thereafter. So they're going to have to figure out how to implement this policy that doesn't produce polarization that will be bad for both sides indefinitely. Um, that said, nothing compels them to do that, right? This is just sort of political advice, not not the reality of the fact that they can often ignore that. So, so we have a loser's consent problem when we have really narrow elections. Uh, you know, a good example that we often forget about is how close Quebec was to leaving Canada in the 1990s. That was much tighter than, than Leave's victory uh, in, in the Brexit referendum. Quebec remains part of Canada, but it was such a, you know, kind of 1% margin that that it does store up a lot of trouble indefinitely afterwards. It doesn't mean that the problem is over. So firstly, the narrowness. Secondly, uh, referendums, I think, are less useful uh, when the problems are really large. And that's unfortunate because it would be nice to solve all of our big problems with simple decisions. But the example you give about having a referendum about intervening in foreign wars is a great example there, right? An incredibly complex question, which can't normally boiled down to either you always intervene or you never intervene. In other words, it's not really a binary. Resolving it in a binary fashion just punts the problem, let's say you decide you are still going to intervene of how to intervene, or punts the problem if you say you're never going to intervene, of well, you know, what if there are massive demands on you? Are there ways of you know providing lend lease money and things like that? Right? So it's normally never zero one. And that's exactly what we ultimately found with Brexit, which is there's lots of ways of not being in the European Union. You could be like Norway and be very, very similar to being in the European Union, having free movement of goods and money and people, mm-hmm. uh, albeit having slightly different tariffs, or you could be like Turkey and have the same tariffs, but none of the other stuff. Or you could be like Russia and be <laughs> not part of the European Union at all. Or you could be like Israel and New Zealand that are part of the European Union's research program, which hilariously Britain is is not, right? So lots of different ways of leaving. And the problem we got to in the UK was we made the decision to leave, yes, but how? And then that wasn't decided. And ultimately, there were another set of differences there that made it very, very hard for Theresa May, the Prime Minister at the time, ever to come up to any decision. And ultimately, that only got resolved by having another kind of referendum-like act with the general election at the end of the year with Boris Johnson coming in and kind of steamrollering through his
0: preferred version. Yeah, I really like your rubric for understanding um, a successful, or not even just successful, just sort of a a framework for when a referendum makes sense. So, for example, given what you're saying, a um, vote in, let's say, the 1990s to decide whether or not to join the EU, Um, a referendum in that case would have been simpler at the straightforward because the the question is just do we join or not, and then obviously there's going to be are we the Norwegian model? Are we always yeah. different dynamics? That was that's very clear there, too. And it also goes back to the problems with the World War II example, because once again, um does Lend-Lease constitute intervention? Um, does war preparedness, you know, increasing, like, does that constitute um, usage in and of itself? Like, where, could you, where can you deploy the Pacific Fleet if you're going to argue that's going to provoke Japan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's a poor example because the, the referendum itself doesn't actually address the questions that matter um, exactly. in, in the first place. Exactly.
1: You get into a Tolstoy's unhappy families problem, mm-hmm. right? Like, <laughs> there's one happy family, the EU, it has the same key that everybody has to have. There's lots of unhappy families. There's lots of ways of not being in the EU. Um, but prohibition was, I mean, prohibition was in part decided by referenda at the state level, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but even that turned out to be more complex than people thought, right? It wasn't clear at the beginning about what exactly was the level at which an intoxicating liquor was intoxicating. And I think initially in the debates, people thought that weak beer would still be allowed and it wasn't in the end by the way that the law was was written. And then repeal was also complicated because it Mm -hmm. turned out not simply to turn everything back to pre-1919 but actually to create this whole complicated array of different alcohol laws you have across U.S. states right so even in a case of something like prohibition that seems like a zero one it turned out not to be
0: you know it's interesting your articulation of the kind of do you do a do-over if you're you know doing a brexit referendum and eventually the problem of just if you ask for too many do-overs um you can't have a poll and once again like i'm I, over time i'm gonna you know take a few listeners off i've become less and less um favorable towards the the brexit side i i, I don't know how I, I, I probably if if i'm honest i probably would have voted remain if i were a uk citizen but i think the um post brexit uk is not in the particularly favorable position people who supported it um would have favored but that said, I think it would have been, uh, I think, politically uh, not great to be eloquent um, to kind of just do over referendums until you get the right answer. That wouldn't have been democratically legitimate. But you you, you raising that point um, brings to mind a bit of squeamishness I have with Democratic reformers. So let me just try to put the question as clearly as possible, or comment, then question. I've spoken with a lot of folks who favor, hey, like let's abolish first-past-the-post-voting, or let's have... Um, uh what's have a system like Alaska where you know you do um uh you know Man, I'm forgetting all these different terms. This is really embarrassing because I've done these episodes. But you do you do the system where yeah,
1: like single transferable vote
0: and things. Yeah, like single that. transferable yeah. vote. Um, all all the, all those different systems. I get squeamish about them because you can make all sorts of arguments in favor of them, but they very clearly are intended to produce a result. The yeah, the, the intended quite. result of most of these reforms. And once again, I'm moderate in my politics, so obviously I'm policy sympathetic to this. Is hey, like let's produce a more moderate. Result. Let's have open primaries. You don't have like extremists Mm -hmm. take control of political parties. You'd have to campaign accordingly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm squeamish though, because very explicitly or implicitly, if you're being a little less honest, the result is we want to have specific policy results emerge from these democratic reforms. What is your thought on that dynamic or that dilemma?
1: Uh, Well, you're absolutely right, right? Every electoral system biases particular outcomes. And I begin the book, you know, we've talked quite a bit about Brexit. I don't want to bore your listeners to death on Brexit. Uh, But I start with this narrative where a colleague and I, he's an an expert on electoral systems, at least. Uh, I was along for the ride. We went and we advised a couple of the politicians who'd taken control during the Brexit process of what's called the order paper, which is basically the right to, to call votes away from the government. Because this was in the most chaotic period where the Speaker of the House of Commons had essentially seized control. Uh, and we went to them and we talked about different electoral systems that the members of parliament themselves could use. Right? So this isn't just voters, this is members of parliament to make a decision about Brexit. And what we realized as we did that is that different systems that we offered differently favored moderate versus extreme options. Right? So to give you kind of obvious examples of this. The form of election, sorry, um, the electoral system of what we call alternative vote is one where you remove first, you ask everybody to rank options, and then you remove first the option that the fewest people love. Mm -hmm. But if you're in a world of extremes where people either want to leave or remain, that means that the boring middling ones get taken out first. So maybe you don't want that because you're worried you'll end up with extremes. But Then the alternate alternative vote, the Coombs system, that takes out the most hated the one that has the most bottom rankings first. But then the ones that are the most hated are probably the extreme ones, right? So now the extremists are like, wait a second, I don't want to do that. And even worse, people can then, knowing this, they can lie about their preferences. So if you're an extremist, you can start lying and say, I actually prevent, you know, I quite like this other extreme in order to take out the moderate option that you think might win. And I have seen this in departmental meetings over the years. (laughs) I've seen this at the British Academy when we vote on new members. Everybody always tries to manipulate voting systems because they think that the voting system is going to produce a certain outcome. So when democratic reformers in America talk about, look, everything would be so much simpler and more representative of people's breadth and portfolio of views if we allowed these kind of ranking systems, they forget that A, different ranking systems privilege, moderate versus non-moderate outcomes. So which ranking system do you want? And secondly, that people lie when they have ranking systems and they misrepresent how much they like things. And mathematically, there is no way of resolving this problem. There is no perfect electoral system. So all I would say to colleagues in America who think about democratic reform is say to them, look, the bigger problems seem to me to be ones about malapportionment and misrepresentativeness in terms of partisan gerrymandering uh, and arguably in terms of the structure of the Senate, although no upper house in the world is that great. But funnily enough, if you look at the House of Representatives, which is you know, often a kind of crazy <laughs> institution in terms of how it's run, it actually mirrors pretty well the overall vote, right? It's pretty representative. It's more proportional than than we often end up in the United Kingdom because there's only two parties playing in the states. Mm-hmm. So I would say be careful what you wish for with this, uh, and don't imagine that there's some kind of system that even if you think you could get it and it gave you what you wanted, that people wouldn't somehow undermine.
0: Yeah, and that's a helpful note. The by the way, Roy, the the word there was the phrase was escape me is like ranked choice. Yeah. Ranked um, choice loading. voting. That's what, that's what I was, that's what I was, um, I'm thinking about. So yeah, so just a, and, th- and this is where you get into the, the job of a politician. I would much rather, and once again, hindsight's 2020, um, and a lot of these activists are responding with democratic reforms, um, in this specific period, um, uh, of time because they've seen issues raise up. But I think from my perspective, that's the time to reform America's, uh, political system is during, The 1990s. It's like that. So, like, if 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 we're saying that like bold like economic reforms and change could happen in response to a crisis, I think that political reforms are probably best implemented in an ideal world when there are not. Complicated socio-cultural questions up yeah. for grabs, where the the two extremes in themselves um, are going to are are going to want to push back because very clearly the reforms are going to advantage one yeah. one one side of the other. It's probably best to do um, you know progressive you know giving everything from women to the right to vote to um, changing the way that sen- senators became senators in the 1910s versus the 1930s. Um, so what's actually get I think into- y-
1: your point is things are much easier when you have economic growth. Yes. It is much, much easier to make major political decisions where there are going to be some losers where theoretically the winners could pay off the losers. They don't always, but, but, but you can, it's much easier to avoid polarizing outcomes when there's more to go around.
0: Yeah, and let's let's actually, um, speaking of which, let's actually get into the book. So what I, what I think is very helpful is you provide a framework across, you know, five different issues where you, you I don't want to, you know, misquote you, but there it's not that there's consensus on like, there's consensus on like where we're trying to go. Like we want to live in a society yeah. that's where there's equality. We want solidarity. So just explain these five concepts that folks For can sure. kind of take notes and go from there. Yeah.
1: And, and so this, in a way, is, 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 a, is a challenge of the book because some of your listeners might, might agree with these big five collective goals. But let's, let's reach them out as broadly as we can. So there are five things I argue that we all want. Democracy, the ability to self-govern. Equality, and this is a bit tricky, <laughs> we can come to in a second, but let's view it as all be treated equally in some way. Solidarity, which is the idea that we would all like to be looked after when times are hard and to to feel that we looked after others when times were hard for them to some degree. Okay, how we do that, of course, we can come to. Security, I think fairly uncontentiously, we'd all like to be safe. And prosperity, we'd all like to have as much as our parents and grandparents had and hopefully more. So those are the sort of five big goals in the book. And then the motif that runs through the book, sort of the simple answer To why politics fails is that every time we try to get to one of those collective goals our individual self-interests clash and make it harder for us to achieve that and that's something that anyone who's taken classes in political science or economics or sociology will know about we often call the collective action problem that there are ways in which each of our individual interests push against those collective goals and where it's very hard to stop us from either lying about what we want or cheating, reneging, slow walking, slacking off and preventing us from getting what we want. And so throughout each chapter of the book, your readers will find, okay, I get it why my individual interests make it hard to achieve these collective goals. Um, And what I really want readers to take from this is also to understand that that's not immoral in any way. That's just sort of natural human behavior. We are all imperfect um, and... It's always easier for each of us to see what's in our individual interest and to hold collective goals at the same time, but not be willing to always make the sacrifices that would get us there.
0: So I want to go through these five in a couple of different ways. So one, I'd love to learn your methodology for determining these are the five, which we can (laughs) broadly say. I'm, I'm, I'm actually, this isn't a, this isn't a, a leading question. question. Like I, I don't, I don't, I don't, this, this isn't a. like, I have a secret follow-up where I'm going to say this is incorrect. I'm just genuinely curious. Like how do you come to um, the belief that these are the five?
1: Yeah. So that's, that's a great question. In a way, there's an element of the book that is doing for the field of political economy that kind of splits across economics and political science, what some other books have done for behavioral economics. So What I'm trying to do is say, look, these are the big types of questions that social scientists are interested in. I think they broadly fall into these five categories. Another way to think about it is just to look at the kinds of questions where you can get 75, 80% of people to support kind of generic uh, suggestions in polls, right? So in most public polling, um, even in the United States, people think the gaps between rich and poor are too large. Now, do I really believe that most Americans would be willing to undergo the types of taxation that might make a big difference to that? I don't know. Um, But I also think, you know, when you can get three quarters of Americans saying that the gaps between rich and poor are too large, that evokes some kind of preference for equality. Uh, You know, and I go through this in, in the opening chapter about, you know, most people think that there should be some guarantees to public health and public education, that's solidarity, I I don't know if I have to make the argument too heavily about wanting to be secure, but certainly uh, around the world, democracy remains incredibly popular. Ironically, it remains more popular with people who live in dictatorships. But I think that's a kind of, uh, you know, uh, familiarity breeds contempt problem, I guess. Mm -hmm. The, The final thing I would say about this is there's a big one that people ask me about, but not being in here. And in my view, it's in the equality chapter, but that's liberty. That's freedom. And I think that's a you know, after all, liberte, egalité, fraternity. Well, fraternity is solidarity and egalite is equality. So where's the liberty? Well, in part it's in democracy, right? It's in in the right to, at least in a liberal democracy, to say what you want and vote how you want. But also in the equality chapter, it's about equal rights, uh, equal civil rights, equal political rights, sure, but also equal property rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, and equal rights, you know, to pass on your possessions to your children and things like that are another form of equality. That's just the form of equality that libertarians value as opposed to what socialists value. So I suppose sometimes when it looks like I'm making a plea for equality, I'm being a little bit more cunning than that. I'm actually saying, well, when libertarians talk about equality, they're not talking about equal outcomes. They're talking about
0: being treated equally.
1: Uh, But we can be treated equally in lots of different ways that sometimes clash with one another.
0: So I want to understand the individual self-interest aspect. So um, let mm-hmm. me give you an example from democracy and wonder if this is kind of what you're suggesting. So um, broad majority of this country believes in democracy, um, broadly construed. I think there's a case you could make that, for example, the District of Columbia um, or a territory like Puerto Rico are not experiencing fully-fledged yep. democracy um, in the sense that you know they're obviously citizens, but they don't have senators. However, from an individual interest perspective, a clear reality of the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico gaining the vote due to the demographic makeup of the states is that the Democratic Party would get four additional senators, which would impact all these other different issues. So there's a tension between the obvious fact that I think if you talk to most people. Um, and let's put aside, you know, people who get a little technical and say, well, the Constitution says the District of Columbia is not a state. Just let's put yeah. let's put those people aside for a second. you talk to most colloquial. I people. have met
1: many of those people. Yes. <laughs> I, and that's and, and
0: why That's not it. And I'm, I'm not even being dismissive. That's actually not an insane. That's a serious. I think the case of Puerto Rico, especially if they wanted statehood be is much more yeah. complicated than the District of Columbia, to be frank. Yeah. Um, but that said, um, if you talk to most people, they would say, yeah, I, I get it. I get why, you know, it makes sense for them to be senators. But if you know I'm a conservative, I'd say, okay, interesting. Um, would you want ex Supreme Court justice to come about because of that? And I think very quickly from self-interest a self interest perspective, from a conservative, I'd say, yeah, no. Um, there's a limit on how "quote unquote" um, democratic. Um, I would actually want to be in practice. Is that a way of like a, of, of kind of articulating the dilemma you're talking about? Yeah.
1: Well, look, I I am a firm believer that everybody in politics acts on self interest, and rather we can we can judge them for that, right? We can judge people uh, morally uh, on their views about statehood for DC or Puerto Rico, but on a self interest basis no one no one is doing something weird here at least right so at least it's mm-hmm. explicable and for me as a political scientist i'm interested in explaining behavior rather than justifying it um and that doesn't mean that there's not a role out there for making moral claims about politics but that's just not the role that i'm interested in in this book i think it's sometimes just helpful to understand why the why the world is the way it is right so what you're saying is absolutely right right it's not surprising in any way the debates about statehood for the District of Columbia and for Puerto Rico at the same time in particular offer nothing for the Republican Party at all. And there's a reason why state introductions have often been paired or near paired in the case of, you know, Alaska and Hawaii was a, was a Republican-Democrat split. In the end, of course, there was no reason to believe, I guess, that it would have to be like that. After all, Hawaii was the home of the United States Pacific fleet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you might have thought it would be a Republican state. But throughout the history of creating states in the union, it's been incredibly political right I mean just think back to the pre-civil War era mm-hmm. issues about Kansas and Missouri so none of this is new in a way right it has always been a fight um the what I think is unfortunate is that there's no obvious territory that would kind of be obviously on the center right that would allow a deal to be struck mm-hmm. and that's what means that we are only in these situations where the Democrats take the trifecta and hope that the Supreme Court doesn't get involved somehow, that we can talk about statehood for Puerto Rico and D.C. And I'm sure the next time, well, even now, right, that the Republicans uh, have taken the House, that's basically off the agenda again. Um, And I think that's always going to be the case unless you have an increase in statehood that at maximum essentially dilutes the power of all the existing states, but doesn't have a really clear partisan swing. Uh, so when should we expect something to happen? Well, either there's some other entity, Guam or something, <laughs> that you think is going to vote Republican. And so you have a way of cutting a deal. Or you expect it to happen under democratic supermajorities, which it didn't. But I suppose, you know, those are the occasions we would expect it to. Otherwise, we're going to get into this crazy world of slicing up California and slicing mm. the Dakotas in half rather than south south, And Uh,
0: Good luck with that, all I would have to say. Um, Another one I'd like to get into, and this is where um, I'd really just like you to reflect on this dynamic. The equality section is really interesting because there's a couple of different ways one could take it, especially um, in the light of the recent Supreme Court decision um, abolishing affirmative action and just kind of like reparations debates you're having in the U.S. right now. So on the one hand, one could say if you're like to the center right to the conservative side, well, you know, we're advancing equality. Um, we're judging people solely on them as individuals. We're abolishing um, racial preferences, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you are on the left, you are saying, well, actually we're not being equal at all because like the nature of America is historical relationship with racism is that like you need to have these preferences or these sort of programs to like ameliorate um, deep structural flaws that result in something being unequal. So, you know, without asking you to like take a specific stunt in every single, you know, American cultural issue, how do you just see, (laughs) and you can go there if you want to go there, but I guess what I'm really asking you is like, how do you see um, the battle between um, uh, different ways of interpreting these goals?
1: Uh, I mean, they are absolutely core parts of the equality trap, as I laid out in the book, which is that equal rights and equal outcomes often undermine each other. I mean, in this particular case, the ending of affirmative action from a center-right perspective looks like more equal treatment, right, a more equal process, or at least a more impartial process, not taking into account uh, any race or ethnic-based characteristics. Uh, you know, maybe the Supreme Court will get rid of legacies. Who's to say? <laughs> but, right, characteristics, I suppose... If you're a purist then that should be removed of, of all types, including um, you know, who your grandparents were. And so. Um, and from the left perspective, or well, from the center-left perspective, it is a is a—I would argue it's not so much a failure of the quality of outcomes, although it would probably be characterized as that, but uh, they would view it as not a proper view of quality of opportunity. Mm-hmm. The the view would be that opportunity is extremely unequally distributed and affirmative action is essentially equalizing that playing field. Now, I think both of these arguments have merits to them, right? And essentially, essentially, they're irreconcilable with one another, but it's also not possible really for us to truly adjudicate because they're just different meanings of the word equality. Uh, and to give you an example of that, there is no um, race-based affirmative action in the United Kingdom in our higher education system. Uh, and that's um, p- protected in part by our own Equalities Act, which essentially is our kind of 14th amendment if you write right like a kind of equal treatment Uh, and so under our equalities act we're not allowed to um you know distinguish among applicants for jobs by race by gender or indeed by age and indeed the institution i work for the university of oxford has its own get out clause from that which means that i'm supposed to retire at the age of 70 um Mm -hmm. it's got an employer justified retirement age in order to break the equalities act right so we have chosen in this country, uh, or our legal system has chosen, to to look at this in a way that has been out of this American debate already. Again, under the auspices, though, of equality. And so everybody means different things. I think it, I think the debate about what equity means has become, made this even more complex in the States, uh, because equity seems to be a bit of a moving target in what people mean by it in different conversations. Um, and I think it is a kind of... It's it's a battle where everybody's speaking past one another. And I unfortunately don't see a way really for that to be resolved because these are just fundamentally different conceptions of what equality is about.
0: So I guess the, you know, big wrap-up question, and this is an unhelpful question to ask a political scientist is, okay, so like what's to be done here? Like what's the, <laughs> like what's the, this isn't exactly like that. I, I think of this more as a like a framework slash toolkit book. Um, like understanding and diagnosing, but just sort of, you know, to kind of push you on it, then like, let's say you are in a position of responsibility. What what, what should one's takeaway be here?
1: Okay. I guess what, so if you're a reader of the book, there is something I'd like you to get out of it, which is to make peace with the fact that people disagree on things. Uh, You know, I think that is, that's a really important fundamental truth of being human that our echo chambers and social media often make us, in a way, we know that people disagree with us, we just hate them for disagreeing. And I think I would like to, to, for us to acknowledge that disagreement is healthy, perhaps not the type of disagreement that we have, but most importantly, that there isn't a way around it. And what politics does is it provides us with the, the institutions that we use to deal with the fact that we disagree. And so you know, the big kind of why does politics fail psych meta answer at the end of the book is, well, it's going to really fail if we pretend we can get along without it and we can squeeze it out either with, a, you know, through markets or technology or some kind of Elon-esque wizardry or by some kind of strong leader who crushes our differences, essentially. That's not going to work, right? We do disagree. Um, and so I think what effective politics does then, thinking about what the implications are of that, is it finds ways to channel that disagreement. Healthily and over a medium to long run. So, I think a problem with the United Kingdom is yes, our electoral system, which is first past the post, and so does tend to leave some people out, by the way, including people who voted for UKIP, right, who were sort of left out of parliament despite 10% of the population voting for them. Um, but the other problem with it is it's really short termist. And I do think that countries that get into this kind of scorched earth politics that we're having in the UK and the US where Labour or the, or the Democrats come in for four to eight years and are followed by the Conservative sort of Republicans everything is sort of stripped out, removed to Sunday and we start again, is unhealthy for all of us, right? Most of us make decisions in our lives that last longer than four to eight years, right? When you get a mortgage, when you're thinking about where you'd like to buy a house and live with your children, where they were going to go to school, what your pension's going to look like, and if we tie ourselves and our politicians tie us to essentially the political equivalent of the quarterly earnings report, mm-hmm. then we're just going to end up with this kind of with this volatility that I think has been really unhealthy. Uh, I do think when people talk about what the good news about proportional representation is, is that because it's hard to assemble a coalition you have lots of parties that are often in power. And that might mean it's unaccountable and you think, why are the damn liberals always in power or why is the Christian Democrats always in power? But it does lead to some kind of stability over long-run policymaking. And I think that's what we really lack at the moment. And so I would just encourage people not to want to get rid of the few institutions that we do have that are kind of long-looking, like the Federal Reserve or even the courts, right, which are supposed to think about longer-term decision-making, Uh, and have a horizon that's beyond simply four years either side. Those types of institutions are often anti-democratic, but I think they're important for us to be able to retain the kinds of stability we need for each of us, you and I,
0: to actually make the decisions that are important in our private
1: and personal lives.
0: You know, you actually helped me think of an actual uh, final question here, which is um, a common, and, and I'm, I'm obviously intellectually sympathetic to this complaint, but I also, just as a person who just does this for a living, um, don't experience (laughs) this this as a problem. A lot of folks complain that politics has infected everything. Everything is political. I had a guest on this week who was, you know, saying, you know, why does abortion have to become political? Like, why does... Um, you know, why why are athletes like kneeling and making like the NFL political? And then to mm-hmm. go to like the left wing version of this critique, like why are conservatives um, turning Bud Light and Dylan Mulvaney and Target's decision yeah. to um, offer some LGBTQ products political? But just from my perspective, these are that's just like an obvious separate from like wh- how one feels about these issues. Obviously, like that's a place. Like if you're an NFL star, you have one of the biggest platforms in a society is increasingly decentralized obviously you're going to utilize that venue to advance your perspective. If you are a conservative who sees yourself not in charge of cultural institutions, you are going to say, Hey, I'm going to make bud light political as a means of like actually fermenting political backlash. So that's politics. So it seems to me, once again, like I I have a hard time sympathizing with the complaint because it's just, it's just, it's, it's like someone's describing the way the world is. Sometimes it rains. Um, Sometimes you like wake up with a slight hangover. So just what is your kind of advice or like response to people who feel but at the same time i definitely will recognize things probably were not quite as political and let's say a calm like late 1990s end of history period what's your kind of reflection on this dilemma so you know i think everybody disagrees right like i've already made
1: that point out and this is just that sort of pervading other areas i i do think the internet amplifies our ability to see that disagreement everywhere but Cast you know your mind back to the sixties and seventies, right? Not not the nineties for the moment. Although I'm sure that there was discontent in the nineteen nineties. Um, but in the sixties and seventies, you had things like Marlon Brando refusing to take an Oscar, right? And Having a Native American woman go up and receive it on his behalf with John Wayne scowling in the audience, right? Charlton Heston became the head of the NRA, right? So our entertainment politics was suffused. Sorry, our entertainment industry was suffused with politics. Throughout most of the late 20th century right I mean think about Hollywood and blacklisting and so on like Kazan Ronald Reagan so we've always been like this I think it is I think the speed and and velocity of the media that we consume just makes us see ever more of this. And everybody goes through political cycles, but also cycles of being good guy, bad guy. I mean, look at Lizzo over the last week, right? Like she's done a a kind of 180 in how people feel about her. Look at Kanye. So Mm -hmm. the speed with which we're able to see artists who are often some of the most fundamentally flawed people in society, and that's why we love what they do, but we're able to see all the different views they have on everything. I think our access to that makes it seem that people are more politicized than they were in the past. And I'm just not sure that's true, right? And and the counting of the 60s and 70s in Hollywood certainly doesn't look like a kind of peaceful world in which everybody agreed. We can just see it more. And also we don't have the distance of time with us, right? We're always seeing what's most immediate to us uh, and getting wound up about Bud Light this week uh, when perhaps people were, you know, wound up about Chick-fil-A five years ago uh, and wound up about you know, an alcohol industry throughout most of the 20th century
0: and so on. Yeah, that's uh, really well stated. Well, Ben, this has been really great. Could you shout out the book for folks who want to go to the links I have in the show notes to uh, learn more?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The book's called Why Politics Fails. Uh, If anyone's watching on video, and I don't know if they can, I'm showing it, but it came out with Public Affairs back in May. It's available at all good, bad, and mediocre (laughs) bookstores. So, uh, you know, please do read it.
0: This was fun. Thanks for joining me on The Realignment. Thank you, Marshall. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something like the show sort of mission or want to access our subscriber-exclusive Q&A, Lotus episodes, and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, $50 a year, or $500 for a lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.